Welcome to the Citizens Youth Sermon Podcast. We are a ministry of Northwest Gospel Church and a community of students who are learning to live for Jesus. We meet every Wednesday at 7 p.m. To find out more, visit nwgospel.com slash citizens. What's going on, Citizens Youth? Hey, we are almost here. How many more days of school do we have left? 200? Zero? All right. Homeschoolers, just you can stand and leave the back of the room. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking, guys. I'm sorry. Please sit down. Um, how many days left? Like two weeks? Less than that? I don't know. Three weeks? Okay. Guys, a month? No. June? Middle of June? Ugh, a month. That's lame. Hey, we're almost there is what I'm trying to say. Keep the faith. Hold on. Summer is almost here. We'll open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We've made it to the double digits of this incredibly complex and amazing letter called Hebrews. And if you haven't been with us, let me just summarize the whole book in one sentence. Jesus is greater. And um, that is a humongous oversimplification of what the narrative actually is. Uh, But that's what we've been learning together uh, through this amazing book that God has given us. I'm so glad that you're here. If it's like your first or second time, I know going into a room like this, not knowing a lot of people, not really knowing what the heck's going on can be super intimidating. But I'm super glad that you joined us. If it's your first time, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. And um, we've got a bunch of leaders around the room who would love to talk to you, welcome you in if you haven't been already. All right. Hebrews chapter 10. Do you guys, are you familiar with Albert Einstein's definition of insanity? Have you heard this? This is like a dad quote that like people use. I've noticed my dad was kind of obsessed with this quote. Albert Einstein famously said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, but expecting a different result. And you're like, ah, okay. Yes, the guy sounds very smart. Of course. That's what Einstein says the definition of insanity is. I kind of like it. And some call it insanity, but some people call it determination and just grit, right? And I choose to believe that for myself. Einstein may call me insane. That's fine. What does he know? A few things. All right. So how many of you have tried something again and again and again to no success and to no avail? You tried it, didn't work, tried it, didn't work, tried it, didn't work, tried it, didn't work. Uh, Einstein would say that you're insane, and practical wisdom may also say that you're insane. Uh, for me, I had this situation all throughout college and into my um, early professional career, I don't know, 20, 21 years old, where I kind of refused to give up on my dream car, which was a 1997 Jeep Wrangler. Now, I was the proud owner of a Jeep Wrangler back in the day because I used to be cool, and now I'm old and lame, and I drive a Subaru. But that's besides the point. Um, And here's the thing that happened with this Jeep. I loved it. It was a 97 Wrangler, as old as me, so we were born in the same year, manufactured in the same year. Um, And I was determined. I am old, yes. Go 90s. Let's go. Best three years of my life. And... um, I was determined 
that I was going to have this car forever. But here's what happened. Without fail, again and again and again and again and again, this thing would break down. Uh, this thing was an amazing car when it worked, which was probably about 50% of the time. The other 50% of the time, it was like hit or miss on whether or not it was going to decide to start that day. Uh, it was a mechanical piece of garbage, but I loved it. Anyways, I would walk out to my car ready to go to class or more likely to hang out with friends, probably not going to class or work, probably hanging out with my friends. But um, I would go to turn the key, and there would be some version of sputtering or noises, and it would maybe just not work. There was power steering, radiator pumps, tires, batteries, sputtering, revving, all these things. Oil lines broke. Everything that could have gone wrong with this car over the four or five years that I, that I owned it absolutely went wrong. But I had this thing in my brain that I was like, you know what? Maybe one day it'll just, like, stop. Maybe one day it'll just fix itself. I mean, maybe one day I'll go to start it, and for the next five years I have zero issues with it, right? And that was not the case. Insanity or determination. I don't know, whichever one it may be. Expecting the same, or doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. I mean, I was on a first-name basis with my mechanics in Virginia and in Illinois. That's how frequently our visits were, right? And um, let's just say I eventually sold it, because I decided to not get the same result again and again and again. Um, so the author today of this awesome text in Hebrews is drawing out the obvious. He's painting a picture of something that is very obviously happening. And if you've spent any time in the Old Testament, if you've spent any time in the church, if you've spent any time as a Christian, you know that for thousands of years, there's this cycle that happens. God's people would sin, and they would have to offer a sacrifice. God's people would sin, and they'd have to offer a sacrifice. God's people would sin, and they'd have to offer a sacrifice. God's people sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, sin, 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 and then they would eventually would die, and then they're dead. But then their kids sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, dead. Their kids' kids sin, sacrifice, sin, and their kids' kids. For generations, this happened. It was this cycle, and for lack of a better word, it was insanity. But there's a moment in time where God says, we're not going to keep doing the same thing over and over again. We're not going to continue this cycle. We're going to fix this thing once and for all. We're making a shift. I'm sending somebody who is going to make this sin issue right. It's not just going to atone for a sin of people temporarily, whether it was accidental, intentional, whether it was against someone in their family or against someone else. I'm going to fix the very heart of sin once and for all. And that's what the author is trying to do today. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, or, or for a short time, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know that we, as believers, are tempted to fall into a similar cycle. No, we don't have to offer an atoning sacrifice, thank goodness. That would be really gross to slaughter bulls and cows and cattle and sheep. Thank goodness. But you and I can fall into a cycle as well. Sin, conviction, burnout, and then like maybe somewhere in there we repent. 
sin, kind of guilt, and then just a long period of waiting. But I'm here today to tell you and to point you to this text to say that God has made an atoning sacrifice for sin, past, present, and future, for all of mankind once and for all. And as much as we cognitively understand that this is true, practically all of us in this room are tempted to walk away from this truth that we have to be bolstered to constantly. So here's what the text says. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. God, I pray that you'd be with us as we're reading this text. Uh, many of us, for the first time, looking at verses like this, I pray that you'd give all the listeners in the room understanding and clarity and a, a fresh new perspective on your word. God, I pray that we would see your sacrifice in a new and a fresh way right now. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our first four verses show us a picture of insufficient sacrifices. I don't know if you've ever had this horrifying and it's very embarrassing moments where maybe you're trying to buy something. Maybe you're at a coffee shop. It's kind of worse when you're out to dinner. But you're like, maybe a right around payday. And like, you know, for all of you guys working at like Chick-fil-A part-time, you know this. You like see like $30 in your bank account. And you're like, yes, this is amazing, right? And then like you go out the night before. You're like, I still think I have like 12 bucks. So let me go to 7-Eleven to get something. But um, there's this like horrifying moment when like your card declines. Has anyone had this happen? It's just like the most horrible feeling where you're like, oh, well, not only am I poor, I'm embarrassed. I'm sorry. I'm going to leave now. Goodbye, right? Uh, maybe this has happened, but I think of that when I hear the word insufficient. Not good enough, doesn't have what it takes, doesn't quite cut it, and this is what the author is saying about what? Bulls and goats, for it is impossible for the blood of these things to take away sins. These first four verses show us that there were uh, temporary but insufficient sacrifices offered by the people of God for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And this is another mic drop moment in this letter. Bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Thank goodness we can just like all go to bed tonight like not wondering if we need to sacrifice animals anymore. The answer is no, because they're insufficient. But what are these things? What is the law? The law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, meaning they're present, this present audience, and it's hard for us to understand, but we got to put ourselves in the listener's shoes. This present audience was born, many of them, into the Old Testament, all of them, into the Old Testament sacrificial system. 
And then they got to meet Jesus, many of them face to face, or hear about him, or meet people who did know him. And what this author is doing now, he's saying, we had no idea what, what was going to happen. This law, the, what the Lord was working out in the past, this was a mere shadow of what? The good things to come. Look at that verse again, the first verse. This law was but a shadow of the good things to come. God's law is good. Uh, God's law is good news. God's word is good news. It's important we remember that. It's important that we know that. It's important we put pause on the conversation about animal sacrifices to know that God has always had a good plan through his law. But in this place and time, to Old Testament believers, Old Testament listeners, they only have part of the story. They only know the first part of the story so far. They only have a shadow or had a shadow of the things that were going to come. And the author says, guess what? The good things that the law was foreshadowing are here and they are found in Christ. And he's continuing on with this argument. They're continuing on with this argument saying, um, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Why is the, this insufficient? Because bulls and goats cannot take away sins or make anyone perfect. Nothing can make us perfect. As hard as we try as closely as we follow religious practices or even follow God's law, nothing can make us perfect. What the author is doing is saying there's this thing that's happened every single year. So when it talks about a yearly sacrifice, that's the Day of Atonement. But sacrifices needed to be brought to the priests daily. The priests themselves had to make sacrifices daily. And it is happening over and over and over and over and over and over again. And the author is saying here, hey, um, if that was enough, if that was enough, then why do we keep doing it? Okay? If, if, if this is good enough to make us perfect, why do we have to do it every single day for generations and generations and generations and thousands of years of this? Thousands, millions of animals slaughtered on our sins, for our sins. If that was going to make us perfect, why do we have to do it every year? And the author's beginning his argument to say, maybe we don't need to anymore. And maybe there is a better sacrifice. So, this is all very complicated. But we're all, we all have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We all have brains that work. We all have ears to listen. Big questions that come up when we read passages like this. Um, so why did God prescribe these things in the first place? Does anyone ever do that? Does anyone ever be honest in church and say, why is God doing all this stuff, man? Because I love Jesus. I like the idea that I can pray. I like the idea that I have the Holy Spirit inside of me. But like two-thirds of the Bible are about like animal stuff, which I'm just like, I'm not understanding. So why did God prescribe these things in the first place? There's a lot of good answers to that question. But two boiled-down condensed answers is, one, they did temporarily hold off the wrath of God. Romans chapter 6 talks about this. These sacrifices did withhold the wrath of God for a season of time and the judgment of God. Uh, Paul talks about that in the book of Hebrew, or excuse me, the book of um, Romans. 
And also what this passage is showing us is these things were a shadow of the things that are to come. Jesus is the key that unlocks our understanding of Scripture. Jesus is the key that unlocks all of the understanding of all the Old Testament prophecies and passages. It is all contained in the life of Jesus. And every single sacrifice, every single drop of blood shed, every single instrument and specific um, instruction into constructing a tabernacle and what it looks like, it all points to the good things that are to come. And if you're in the room right now and you're thinking, man, well, we're really lucky to live right now when Jesus has already come, the answer would be yes, that is a very good thing. Because for thousands of years, people were in this system where they, and, and it was prescribed by God and it was good and it was uh, for the time being what God had prescribed for these people. But one day, there's going to be a reason revealed to them. And the author of Hebrews is saying, the good news has come. The good news is here because the bulls and the blood of the goats, all these things, they're not able to what? Take away sins. So another important question, what happens to Moses, Abraham, Noah, all of these people of the faith that are in what we're going to read, the hall of faith in just a few verses? What, how did these people get saved? If Jesus hadn't died yet, how were these people saved? And the answer is still faith in the coming Messiah. While these animal sacrifices were what God prescribed for a temporary moment in history, they were not the thing that was going to save them. They always had to put their faith in a Messiah that was going to come. And that was Jesus. There was never the blood of an animal that saved any of these people in the Bible. It was always God. We remember in Hebrews chapter 3, what is the key to salvation? The answer is belief. I would encourage you, read through Romans, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 3 again, which talks about God allowing the Israelites into his rest because of one thing, belief. Belief is always what justifies, and, and faith is always what justifies a believer. So uh, Hebrews 3 showed us that. These things were pointing to the good things that were to come. So was this a waste of time? Was this like a weird thing that God was trying to do? Is this just a very strange moment in history? Not at all. These served a point to point to the things that are to come. The good things. Verse 1. The good things that are to come. It'll be a good day when a goat, a ram, or a bull, or any other sacrifice wouldn't need to be brought before the priest any longer, but there would be a good day when a priest himself would offer himself up as a sacrifice. That's why it's called Good Friday, and that's why it's called Good News, because it was a picture of good things that were to come, these sacrifices, but we serve a priest who sacrifices himself. And that's what we've been reading about for, I don't know, a thousand weeks now. But that's the good news. The things that have uh, were to come was Jesus. And he's going to continue on in verse 5. It says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book. That's from Psalm 40. 
that verse there. And then verse 8 says this. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we have been sanctified through the, atone, the, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. These few verses show us Jesus taking on flesh. We just sang that, took on flesh to save the lost. This is a beautiful, this is from Psalm chapter 40, and it's kind of in the middle of this psalm that's all about deliverance. Psalm 40 is like one of my favorites. It's about deliverance. And then there's this interesting interaction where the Messiah himself, which has not arrived yet in Psalm chapter 40, is speaking to God. And he says this, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus took on a physical body to be a sacrifice on our behalf. God is doing a new thing. God is doing a new thing. God is starting something new in the biblical story of redemption with Jesus. In asking ourselves these questions, like why did God require these things in the first place? We can't lose sight of what God always had in mind. Sacrifices you have not desired, right? The Messiah is saying these things and you're like, well, I read a lot about it. It seems like God really does care about sacrifices. But he needs one sacrifice once and for all. He needs one perfect sacrifice. So what does he do? A body you've prepared for me. That's Jesus talking to God, the Father, Sacrifices, burnt offerings for sin you no longer desire, but you've prepared for me a physical body with blood inside of me and a heart and a mind and a physical body. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure, but I've come to do your will. And what would the will of God be? The will of God for Jesus would be to suffer on our behalf, to walk into the heavenly temple and to split the veil in two. A priest, not walking in with the blood of goats or lambs, but a priest walking into the heavenly temple with the blood of himself, dripping from his head and from his hands. This radical picture of love. That is God's desire. An atoning sacrifice once and for all. Verse 10. And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's why Jesus says it is finished. That's why he, when he's hanging on the cross, he says it is finished. Not his life. I mean, he's going to come back in three days. The atoning sacrifice that was needed for sanctification is done. Finished. Over. Once and for all. And that's the story of the gospel. In asking ourselves these important questions, we have to keep Jesus in the center of it. Verse 9 is this beautiful passage too. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. 
Jesus says this in Mark. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'm going to read that again. I want you to listen to that closely. Do not think, this is Jesus talking, I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. A very poor interpretation of Scripture would be Old Testament weird, Jesus better. Jesus like drop kicks the Old Testament as like lame and then he's better. No, 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 he doesn't do that. That's not what the story of Scripture is. The story is Jesus doesn't abolish these things. He fulfills them. Jesus doesn't say, forget about all that. He says God's wrath is far too great and the sin, the penalty of sin is too great. I need a perfect sacrifice. I will be that sacrifice. And he makes a way for us. Jesus doesn't destroy what God was doing through the law. He perfected it and fulfilled it. Jesus doesn't throw away this masterpiece that God is painting. He became the center of it. Jesus didn't just throw away the script that God was writing and start a new story. He became its main character, bringing meaning to the first act. Jesus is the key to understanding all of the law and all of the prophets. He doesn't come to abolish them, but rather to fulfill them. So some people read that passage weird, and they're like, okay, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. A, a, a really good interpretation of that passage would be, he does away with it because he has fulfilled it. Because he has completed it, he is putting it away. And now the new way the once and for all sacrifice is through Christ. The one way, the only way, the true way. They pointed as a shadow of the things to come. That's what the author is saying here. And Jesus taking on flesh. Jesus gives meaning to all of the law and prophets. Jesus gives meaning to all of it as he takes on flesh. We don't, we're not bad with our Bibles throw away the parts we don't like and follow this Jesus that we do like. We understand he is so significant in this whole story. Every word of scripture is important and Jesus is the way. And through this we've been sanctified. So how are we saved? I know that we believe cognitively that it's Jesus, but how do we functionally Act like we're saved. Let's read the last few verses and talk more about that. Verse 11 says this. And every priest stands daily at his service. Talking about God, God the Father. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Oh, similar to verse 1. There's that word again. Same sacrifices. Offering the same sacrifices. Again and again and again and again. It's happening and it is not going anywhere Soon, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness for us after saying, this is the covenant that I make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. 
Where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. At the end of this passage, we see Jesus seated in victory. Seated in victory at the right hand of God. Seated in victory. When you think of a victorious conqueror, maybe you have this picture of some Renaissance painting of a king standing over with a sword that his enemies slain behind him. Or you picture a warrior on horseback charging with men behind him. But after the victory that Jesus has, he sits down next to God the Father. I just picture this moment so peaceful. God is running the universe in charge of all of it. And he's not even breaking a sweat, right? And he's here seated, seated at the right hand of God. So we see here the main thing that's popping out of this is that Jesus offers a single and sufficient sacrifice for all sins once and for all. Jesus' sacrifice sanctifies us once and for all. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, do I functionally live like that is true? Do I actually believe that that's true? I think if all of us were given a quiz, and it's a one-page, one-question quiz, and it said, how are Christians, or how are people saved? How are human beings justified? And if the following options were this, A, good works, B, right intentions and a good conscience, C, believing that Jesus' death, resurrection, and life is sufficient for salvation through faith, or D, whatever you want to believe, I think all of us would cognitively say, well, of course, it's C, it's Jesus. All right. How about how we actually live? How about the evidence of our lives? So many of us try and find salvation in so many different places. You may have kind of two extremes here. You may have a person who works their fingers down to their bone with anxiety and fear of shame, of rejection before a holy God. And they are working hard to keep every single rule in Scripture, to keep every single rule that God has prescribed to them because they don't want to fall out of grace with God. And they're working needlessly and tirelessly in a performance-based faith. You maybe have someone on that side of the spectrum. And on the other side, you may have someone who says, well, I prayed this prayer in fifth grade, and I think that's good. I think Jesus will forgive me for whatever. And There's no conviction of sin. There's no striving for holiness. There's not even any evidence that this person is a Christian. But cognitively, they're like, well, Jesus saved me when I prayed that thing, right? And, and, and that's not good either. And I kind of use these two extremes to highlight the reality is that we can forget where our salvation comes from. If we forget the main thing, what's the point of any of this? If we forget Jesus' sacrifice once and for all moment in time, what is the point? What are we doing? What are we living for? What are we striving for? There's no goodness or godliness without Christ. 
There's no justification, sanctification, walking through and growing through the fruit of the Spirit without God's sacrifice, without Jesus living in our hearts. This is the central point and the central moment of our faith. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sacrificed, sanctified. There's one moment in time where Jesus offers himself up on the cross. And for you and for me, I believe there's one moment where we recognize that and we turn from our sins. I believe. Where do you go to for salvation? Where do you run for peace? Because there is a better sacrifice. I know none of us are trying to sacrifice animals. If you are, please let's talk about that. Don't do that. I know none of us are trying to do that. But these listeners, in this context, the author is so strong and so stern with them for this reason, they're ready to give up. They're ready to throw in the towel. They're ready to convert back to their old ways. They're ready to say, I believe in Jesus, but I also kind of need all this stuff. It's just the way I grew up, and I'm having a really hard time grasping with this, and I think I can have both. This is why the author is being so stern and why God has preserved this word throughout history. There's nothing else that can save. There's no person. There's no good works. There's no good intentions. It is only Christ once and for all. Once and for all. And the encouraging news of the gospel is this. God will continually bring you back to that point. But my call to you today is to listen to God's voice when he says this to you. Return to the moment of the cross. Return to the moment of salvation. Return to the moment because this was sufficient. There's not, when, when we go to the Lord in communion, we're going to a table. We're not going to an altar to sacrifice God again. Why? Because it is done. It is finished. It has happened. We're going to be reminded of the good news that God has given us his body and his blood on our behalf. But my call to you today is to listen to this. Know that Jesus' sacrifice sanctifies us once and for all. There doesn't need to be this anxiety-ridden life where you're trying to not slip out of grace with God. And there shouldn't be this loose and free and frivolous life where you see grace is cheap. There must be a daily reminder of the sacrifice, but there must be encouragement that it is finished and it has been sufficient once and for all. There's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to turn. There's nothing that will give you that salvation. This is good news. This is good news. We don't have to work. We don't have to toil. We don't have to uh, worry. We get to go to the table of communion with the Lord once and for all. And so my encouragement to you today is this. Be reminded of this sacrifice and know that through Jesus' perfection, he can make all of us perfect. We use this word here, verse 1 and verse 14. God has made perfect all of those who are being sanctified. Now you may read that and feel like, well, I don't feel perfect. And the answer is yes and no. Your relationship before God has been reestablished. And God is continuing to sanctify you, which means you're going to become every single day more and more and more like Jesus. And one day, you will be perfect. 
not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done. But my challenge today, remember the joy of your salvation. It is the central point of our entire lives. There's nothing else that's going to offer us this joy. There's nothing else that is going to reestablish a perfect relationship with the holy God. It is only one sacrifice once and for all. One sacrifice once and for all. And Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God in victory with his enemies under his feet. And maybe he's calling to you today. And maybe he's calling to you today again. Maybe he's calling you to remember the joy of your salvation. Maybe he's calling you for the very first time into a relationship with him. And what he would tell you is, my grace is sufficient for you. My sacrifice is enough. The old things were just a shadow of the good things to come, which is me. And there's nowhere else to go. There's nothing else to do. So turn now and embrace him in faith, if that's you. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We're thankful that the Holy Spirit bears witness to these things. And after a sacrifice, after a faith in you, the Holy Spirit has written upon our hearts your law. It's not a rigorous system to follow anymore. It is a gentle and slow and patient voice of conviction reminding of us what your law is. So God, I pray for the room tonight. Many of us have been following you for years. But there's this temptation over time to say Jesus plus and Jesus end and, and Jesus. And then there's also this other thing. But God, would we be reminded that it is just about you, that you are greater, your sacrifice was greater, your sacrifice has sanctified us once and for all. I pray that as we're wrestling with some of these questions in our, our head, we would be honest and open with our, our friends and our small group leaders and that we'd be willing to um, encourage somebody in the room who maybe uh, does have questions or is asking about uh, who Jesus is. God, I pray that we would be good witnesses of your grace, that we would be good stewards of the words that you're giving us. We'd be good stewards with our time, with our voices, and with our very lives. Uh, God, help us to worship you now in spirit and truth, pushing away all distractions, not thinking about what's happening this week or tomorrow or how I kind of want to get up and leave right now, but would we focus in on your sacrifice and sing in this moment, God. Thank you that you've justified us once and for all, that we don't have to constantly worry and offer up sacrifices, but there was a better and greater and perfect sacrifice on our behalf. We love you, Lord Jesus, in your name. We pray these things and we commit our time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.